Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. I'm sitting here with Principal Trumpet of the Houston Symphony, Mark Hughes. And Mark, welcome to my podcast, Studio HFL. Well, thank you for having me. And so I, I know we talked about this on the phone a little bit the other night as we're setting this up, but what's the HFL stand for? HFL? Come on, you're a trumpet player. This oh, man, what... you, you didn't tell me it was going to be a test. I, well, it's a, um, <laughs> what does it stand okay, for? I'll give you higher. Higher. Flow. Faster. Faster. Oh, louder. Yeah, of course. Oh, gosh. Duh, <laughs> duh. So if you go back and listen to See, I've other... blown my brains yeah, out. Well, too much back yeah. pressure. Say, or too much valve oil. Yeah. Yeah, you're sniffing too much valve oil. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Some, some other interviewees have given some absolutely hysterical answers. And uh, uh, Jeffrey Kernow <laughs> being one that comes to mind, if you go back and listen to the beginning of his, uh, something frack and pole, ha- handle frack and pole, and I don't remember. But... Uh, but it's a pleasure to have you here. So let's jump in um, right where we were. Uh, this is how informal this podcast is, right? We're, we're already in conversation. You're talking about summer festivals and Texas Music Festival. Festival. Yes. And, you know, um, I have been trying to encourage my students to go to places like Brevard. You mentioned Brevard right. earlier today. And uh, um, not Aspen. What's the what's the big one up in uh, New England? Uh, the Chosen Vale. Yeah. Uh, Chosen right. Vale is in Colorado. Uh, in New right. England, you've well, probably got Tanglewood, yeah. Tanglewood, and uh, uh, then you have Chautauqua. That's the one I was and, thinking. Okay. And then you also have Interlochen. But so here's the, the point. The, the students have access to all these fantastic festivals at a fraction of what they're going to spend going to drum corps. Drum Corps these days is around, I think somebody told me, four grand for the entire season. I, that's a cheap one. And I'm Some thinking, of them are six to eight. Do you grand. imagine? And, and forget right if you wrap in all the travel fees and all the other things, right? You get back and and I think, oh my gosh, do you know the opportunities you could have, even if you didn't go to a festival, but you just made the rounds, you flew out to study with Mark Hughes for a week, or study with Absolutely. Tom Hooten for a week, or mm-hmm. Mark Inouye, or you mm-hmm. know, choose. Right. And I think, oh my gosh, these kids. Now, a confession is, I did drum corps way back in the day. I get it. You know, it's it's a camaraderie. It's a 
Well, it's a family. You know, and, and you do learn intense discipline. Well, yes. And, and, and the pedagogy has gotten so much better than it was right, right, back in my day. Right. right. So it know. is though, it is abusive. Oh yeah. You know, but but there are several professional players out that did drum well, Google Chris record. Martin, I think, and Mark. Chris or Mike. And uh, Mike yeah. Martin, um, Pete Bond, who's in the Met. Yeah. Pete Pete <laughs> was a screamer podcast. in uh, Phantom Regiment. <laughs> I mean, he, he was a screamer. <laughs> and when I knew Pete, Pete and I played in a ballet orchestra in Atlanta years ago together. Yeah. And, you know, he was strong as an ox. Dude, that guy would practice all day long and yeah. then come to work. Well, he still practices all day long. You know, I see his Facebook post and it's like, well, he's got a great sense of humor. He does. But he is serious. He also know? is a great artist. Yeah. I mean, he's not quite as good as Kernow. But, oh, but you mean in graphic yes. design, graphic? A yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Like cartooning. Yeah. Yeah, the, the music that uh, in Atlanta that was floating around with the ballet, I bet it's still there, had all oh. kinds of Pete Bond artwork on it. And oh, it's quite funny. good. You know, <laughs> he'd take a little thought like post horn and turn it into all kinds of things. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> he, right. he, was, he was, yeah, he's quite talented. So we, that reminds me, we were talking on the phone the other night about uh, repertoire and how you're like, oh, you know, I've never played this piece. And you sit down and you open the music up and there are your markings from yep. another time you had actually performed the piece. Uh, you know, so imagine sitting down, not remembering the cartooning you had drawn in, you know, uh, to some of these or or maybe some language that shouldn't belong mm -hmm. in, some, in mm -hmm. some of these. And it's and then it's there. Yeah, and it's there for posterity. But uh, um, so let's let's back up a little bit. You know, I know a lot of people know who you are and what you're about. Uh, let's start where you are right now, which is with the Houston Symphony. Tell mm -hmm. us uh, how long you've been there. I'm in my 14th season. Um, I started in '06 in the fall of '06 there. Uh, went there from the Atlanta Symphony, which I'd been in Atlanta for 12 seasons. Uh, with the orchestra there as an associate principal and kind of fluky way of getting there when I was associate in, a, in my hometown orchestra I thought I would stay there forever and literally thought that that would be where I would just play my whole career and uh, Jim Thompson left to take the teaching job up yeah. at Eastman after 98, I think it was the uh, spring of 98, he got the job and he went up, started the fall of 98. So I was acting principal for two years oh, while wow. they had the audition for principal, which in, uh, I was a finalist for, but Chris Martin actually won the job. Um, and so then I went back to being an associate. And you know, after you sit in the, the principal seat for two years and you're doing the rep and everything, I mean, Chris made it as easy as could be. He literally said, Mark, you know, let me know if you want to play first on stuff. I know you've been doing the job for two years, mm -hmm. and every piece is on the table. You know, we can wow. I'll let you play it except for Mahler five. That's very good. And other than, it was he was yeah. he was terrific to work with, and he he was there for five years, and we we had a great um, time together. The section was quite good, mm -hmm. quite high performing, and um, and it was uh, a nice thing. I never thought you know about leaving until. Then and I didn't want to leave even with Chris there. We, mm -hmm. we got along great. And then when we both had made finals one time for principal in Chicago, that started making me kind of think again, like, well, I should be playing first somewhere. Mm -hmm. I might not be the greatest player, but I should be playing first, and I'd like to. Yeah. And so when Chris left and won the Chicago job in the, the next Chicago audition, and I didn't go to that one, just 
I, I didn't have a, a good experience yeah. with the one I went to because I didn't think they treated me the way they should. And um, would, would you care to elaborate on that? Yeah, or? I'll be glad to elaborate on that. <laughs> I went and I, I played, and I, I you know played a preliminary just like Chris did, and just like uh, John Rommel did. And the three of us made finals, and the finals were two days later, and they. They put us up in the Palmer House, and I mean, it was nice. They treated, you know, once you make it past prelims, it does change, mm -hmm. and they do treat you differently, and especially an orchestra like that. That part was great. But when we got to the to the finals and we went out to play, um, Daniel Barenboim was uh, also doing, you know, has positions in Europe and everything, sure. and his favorite piano was a German Steinway, that he had tuned to A445. That's not uncommon in Berlin to be playing at okay. that high of a pitch. To our ears, that's that's yanking you out of your seat and yep. putting you on the roof. Does your slide go in that far? It did not. <laughs> and so the for whatever reason, I don't know the specifics why, but the finals, the round of, of the first round of finals mm -hmm. that we had uh, were behind a screen. Mm -hmm. And they roll out that German Steinway and my DE flat uh, Schulke had a I had gotten a special bell like Herseth had mm -hmm. um, that Wayne Tanabe built for me and I could get up to 442 which is what at that time they played oh, uh, but I was coming from Atlanta which we kind of hovered around 439 oh. uh, maybe 440 on a hot day and I couldn't get up beyond 442 and so the intro to the Haydn's kicked off and it sounds like it's quite north of what we're sure. used to. And I come in and I'm not able to get up to pitch. And after about two lines, I hear Barenboim hollering out, would the candidate please stop and tune again? Well, you know, I don't take kindly to being hollered at for one. And sure. especially in that situation, that really startled me. And I can't say anything, right? I'm behind a screen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I look at the proctor and I whispered and I said, what am I supposed to do? I'm all the way in. This is not the piano that, you know, the, the paperwork came from the Chicago Symphony and said we play A442, yeah. which they did at the time. Yeah. And I said, I can't do this. And he said, just do the best you can. And I, today, if that were to happen again, I would have broken the rules and I would have hollered back and I would have probably said something like, you get a piano out here at pitch and I'll mm -hmm. be glad to mm -hmm. play with it probably should have. If I had, who knows? It might have worked out better for me. I don't know. But that I just felt that to be completely unprofessional. And because of that, when they had an audition a year later, I thought, screw that. I don't, I'm not interested. And that's it. Well, then after Chris did win the job, which was great, and he had a great tenure there, mm -hmm. um, Atlanta had another opening again. And I thought, I mean, come on. I'd already made finals for the biggest job in the in the in the country, maybe the world, and they should at least, you know, consider either just giving me the job or <laughs> right. some kind of, right. you know, and and I didn't get it again. And so, in preparing for that audition, I had taken an audition two weeks before, in Houston, mm -hmm. and so anyway. For the position you currently yes, have. Yes, for okay. the position I currently have. So I wasn't really interested in Houston, even though I have some friends in the orchestra there mm -hmm. that I knew from years ago in school and whatnot. Right. But um, it, it, as it turned out, Atlanta didn't hire me again. Mm -hmm. for the four. I took four auditions for principal there over the years. And, um, and 
did not win, and it just wasn't meant to be. See, isn't that interesting, though? And you, you kind of wonder if your colleagues, you know, Mark Hennaway told the story about oh, yeah. his San Francisco out there and how MTT was resistant, reluctant, rather, mm-hmm. to, and finally everybody kind of just chimed in and said, the guy can play the job. What is? What are you doing? Right. Yeah. You know, and I kind of want. I mean, you could do the job. You mm-hmm. did it. Right. Right. You know, and why couldn't they just? You know, it, hand that to you. We, we live in a in a weird age. Um, and as far as auditions, some orchestras are so adamant, like say the Met, for instance, mm-hmm. where it is they have to hire, no matter what. And oh, whoever they can't call a failed they search. Can't call a failed oh, search. Wow. And if. If they don't have, I mean, you know, they, they're not going to, it's like whatever the, the, the numbers are at the end and they don't take down a screen, they, you know, there's n- just go by the numbers of the day and that mm-hmm. the person that wins the day, they win the job. And that can be a, a pretty successful way to get a good player, but it might not be the way, in my opinion, to get the best player. Mm-hmm. Every orchestra knows what it needs. Uh, what's going to fit that position, what's going to fit the sound of that brass section. And, you know, the rules are set up technically to serve that orchestra. Mm-hmm. And people forget that that's really what's going on, but that, that orchestra has gone through its process of making its master agreement right. over the years to fit what it thinks its needs are, the way it, it fills those positions. So... I kind of am not one to say that there's one hard and fast way mm-hmm. to do auditions. If you look in Europe, especially England, the audition process is just the beginning. That's how they come up with finalists. And mm-hmm. once they're finalists, then those players will play with the orchestra over and over and over. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a quite a well, process. There is a trend here in the states to do that, and mm-hmm. in, in some and in orchestras like Indianapolis, I know. Uh, you get uh, one or two trial weeks, mm-hmm. maybe more. We do trial remember. weeks as well. And I think that's brilliant. Uh, you know, if you if the finals are that close and you've got two or three candidates that really are outstanding, that's the best way to do it. it I agree. It, well, and then it comes down to not just do they play well, but do they jive with the rest of the section? Because, right, isn't that going to be... Happy people. You talk about how great your section is. Mm-hmm. That's... The reason you can make such great music together is because everybody gets along. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah, I used to years ago. I was a contractor, and I contracted for the Atlanta <laughs> Opera. Mm-hmm. I've done a little bit of everything, yeah. <laughs> but as a contractor, I was pretty successful at putting orchestras together. Mm-hmm. Didn't really like to do it, but I am good at it. Mm-hmm. And I had a mantra. I would always, when I was talking about, you know, players, but I would say, remember, happy people play better. Yeah. And who do you want to share a stand with? Mm -hmm. And you know, that works pretty well when you're talking about string players. Because one, yes, they have friends, but they don't want to sit with someone who sucks either. So you get a good player that they get along with. And Mm -hmm. the list is usually pretty short. But you can piece together a first violin section that will actually get along. Mm -hmm. As strange as that might sound, but you can do it Mm -hmm. if you're willing to be patient and and gather information so another thing that I always have said in Houston when we do our auditions and I've chaired several committees and I've been on almost every brass committee since I've been there with the exception of one when I was ill once and I couldn't be on one and it's that all information is good you know you you have to know which category to put it in Mm -hmm. but the more information you get the better hire you're going to make for your, Mm -hmm. your orchestra 
And you know, personality does matter. Yeah. And we don't have a process of interviewing like every other job in the in the world does, right? Mm -hmm. So we we don't get that. Our interview is how you perform, and so we're good at judging performance. Mm -hmm. But as musicians can be, a lot of times you have problems with, you know, uh, children that don't play well together on the playground, oh, yeah. and you put that in a section, and you can destroy a section yeah. vibe very quickly. Oh yeah, and we've all played in sections like oh, yeah. that. We know what that's like. Uh, fortunately. The, the trumpet um, sort of lexicon is different than reality. People all think that trumpet players are awful people, and generally that's not true. Most every one of them I know are nice you know, human and beings. Of course, there's, there's some, there are stereotypes and cliches for a reason. Yeah. And there are those few guys out there mm -hmm. that have the ego. They do that, exist. That when you look up trumpet ego, their picture is right But they're there. not as many, right? They're not as many, and that's what I'm getting at. It's not as... And, and maybe not as bad as it used to be. I don't mm -hmm. know. But um, I think, you know, a healthy ego is great. But being obnoxious, that's right. that's when it becomes right. a problem. Right. You know, being confident in your job, being confident and knowing that you're going to show up and, and sit down and play well. You know and what? play well with others. And, and what helps us, because we have four people with, probably my associate is probably the, the one that has the least grand of a of a personality and he's got a really good personality and all and gets along great but he's not as um extroverted sure. as rich and bob and i are mm -hmm. and and we when we sit there we all well one we love there's a genuine love for each other and mm -hmm. respect mm -hmm. so we have that going for us but with personalities and and intelligence in that section i always joke with everybody and say you know it's really wild to be leading a section where I am the dumbest person in the section. <laughs> but there is a caveat. Yeah. I'm not stupid. It's just they're really smart. Oh, that's <laughs> These funny. guys are brilliant, yeah, yeah. and I get the benefit of that. I mean, uh, you know, they're all really, really Mensa material, mm -hmm. smart. And wow. it, it's, it's uh, I just don't have to do a whole lot. I mean, how, how lucky am I, right? We just sit down and we play. How long has it been that way? Since this configuration, uh, this is the best section I have ever been a part of. Um, uh, Personality-wise, of course, but really talent-wise, this is, this is un unreal. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got probably the best young associate of anywhere I can imagine. There What's are several. Name? John Parker. Yeah. Uh, there are many other good ones out there. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of Tom Siders as one of them that comes to mind. The guy in Boston, he's a terrific guy. Same, mm -hmm. same, and that's sort of the, the, the mold I was looking mm -hmm. for when, when we had it. I've wanted a Tom Siders-esque mm -hmm. kind of player, mm -hmm. and we, that's what we found. Uh, somebody that is really a principal player, mm -hmm. just young, and not in the chair just yet, but has been in the chair. Sure. Or like with John, he was principal in Charlotte for mm -hmm. a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm out, and I never have to worry. It's just, he's just a fabulous player. Yeah. And then we have our second player in, who's the most recent hire, Rich Harris. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's been here just a little under two years, mm -hmm. and or right at two years now. And um, it, it's just, you know, he's strong as an ox. He's sensitive, and he's had to work at it. He is, mm -hmm. He's uh, older than John. John's really young, and mm -hmm. Rich has just turned 40. And uh, But Rich has so many gifts. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you're going to go to battle, which in some ways is what we do, 
um, he's the guy you want beside you. And he's going to carry, no matter what, if I'm having a, a, a day that I'm feeling a little less strong, I don't even have to say anything. He knows it. He senses it. And he'll mm -hmm. carry me to the, the, the finish line. That's fantastic. And it's, you know, and he, he knows I'm aware of it. I'm appreciative of it. And it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. If he's having one of those days, it's okay. I'm going to carry him to the finish line. And It's not always easy every day, is it? No. No. And, you know, some people think, well, you're in a position like this. And well, I think, you know, somebody even asked Arnold Jacobs right back in the day about, uh, about something along this line. And he alluded to the fact that it hasn't felt good for 20 right. years or something. Right. Right. There's an old story when Herseth, um, this is when he was playing principal, and Chickowitz was doing a master class at Northwestern. And I wasn't there. This was a little before my, just shortly before my time. But the story got to us pretty quickly once I was in school. And somebody made a comment, well, but, you know, Herseth, you know, he always has good chops. And Chickowitz went over, so when he was still, it was in the 70s when he was still in the orchestra, went over to his case and pulled out the next year's brochure. Mm -hmm. And he hands it to the kid and he said, I want you to look through that brochure and you tell me where you think Bud's going to have a really good feeling face. <laughs> where his chops are just going to be pristine. Right. Just look through there and you tell me where that's going to happen. Mm. And it's like, it doesn't happen. We're mm -hmm. always beat up uh, in one shape or another. Yeah. And the, the biggest learning curve I had when I went into a 52-week orchestra um, was the fact that it's like a minor league baseball player going to the majors, a pitcher, mm -hmm. and they've pitched the minor league season and they can make it through, but you look in the majors in August and a young pitcher and you, they got a dead arm yeah. and they're having to get through yeah. the last six to eight weeks of a season with a dead arm. And that's where that, I always think about us in the mm -hmm. orchestra. You know, when we get to the spring push kind of thing, and it's been a long year already, and that's when you start building up for the big conclusion sure. of your winter season, and you're thinking, man, we're just we're just beat. Well, it's not just the physical aspect, right? The mental aspect. It's, of yes, it's as long, much right? mental, really. It, it, it's kind of what I'm mm -hmm. sort of talking about. You just get mentally fatigued yeah. and worn down because you are. There is a base level of strength that you have, but it's just mental. You know, you just get tired. You mm -hmm. just need a break. And um, the good thing about what well, we'll say about my job in Houston is we do have breaks along the way in this, the, because of our way our schedule is, mm -hmm. um, which is nice. My, in the days when I was in Atlanta, we were also 52 weeks back then. That, that orchestra was cut way back over the years. But when we were 52 weeks there, we always got a week a vacation at the beginning of the summer before the summer mm -hmm. season started, which maybe even two weeks. Mm -hmm. And that would really give you a little bit of like a, and then you would start your summer season and get through that. And then you had three weeks in the fall off before you would start the fall. But in Houston, we don't do that. We do get little, you know, we might right. get a week here and there in the throughout the winter season. But once we get to the end of May, we slam right into our summer season yeah. and we go straight toward the end of July, but then we get a big break of like all of August and mm -hmm. sometimes the last week or two of July. So we get about five weeks. And then if you have negotiated 
increased weeks off, like uh, right. a lot of times principals will get. Um, I can have even a bigger break, and I literally then can put my horn under the bed. Well, that for was going to be my next question: is what does a break look like for you? A break looks like for me is I put the case uh, closed, zipped up, horn is in mm-hmm. in the case, doesn't come out, and I try to take. At minimum of a week off, but what I find is um, it's more about it. what drives how long I can stay off is how much time I have to get back in shape before the fall starts sure. and what the rep looks like when we first come back. Right. So um, it's not uncommon the last few years I will take um, about two weeks off and not touch my horn. Mm-hmm. Um, I think last year I took 10 straight days off. I did pull it out and played one day for about 20, 25 minutes and it still seemed okay to me. And sure. like I could remember, though, I'll put it back up for another four or five days. Mm-hmm. And then I started back slowly and got ready for the season, mm-hmm. and, and it was fine. Um, it's not that we forget how to play. Oh, no. It's just an endurance thing. Yeah. And so, and, and a lot of times, what I find that break, um, you know, you might be struggling on a particular playing aspect, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and you can work on that around your schedule for months. Sure. And, but when you take a break and you come back, it's like you've been healed mm-hmm. and it's gone. And it's been that way for me since I was in college. I need a break. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a few years, uh, even when I was first in Houston, I would not take that break. And I, I think that my mind suffered for it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I used to teach in, at Brevard for years there, I would, some of that would run into some of my break and mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to take more than just a few days off. And it just has worked a lot better for me to have a large break. Well, and it, you know, it's it's easier once you know how things work. It's easier to come back. Um, you know, I, I hesitate even telling some of my younger students it's okay to take a day off, but it is okay to take. It a day is off. okay to take. We got to heal. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Even God took a day off. Well, you know, and, and you know. Well, here's the other thing too: is if we keep equating ourselves to athletes, you know, there, there's more and more. Uh, or there are more and more analogies where people equate what musicians do to. <laughs> athletes. Well, athletes rest. Right. Absolutely. So if we're going to follow that analogy all the way to the end, then we have to include the rest as well. Look at what uh, the NFL does. You know, on <laughs> Monday, they're not they're not out pounding on pads on Monday. Mm-hmm. They're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. They're healing. Mm-hmm. Um, look at every look at a pitcher. What does he do the day after he's pitched a a game? He's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. He's letting some stuff heal. Mm-hmm. Um, every athlete after they run a marathon, what do you do? Well, you know, Playing Shostakovich five, you might need a nice bath after. You know, like (laughs) uh, I tend to not ever use assistance, and when I finish a run of some large work like that, um, I need a day. (laughs) I might still play a little bit, but I try not to. Sure. Uh, A lot of times on my day off, it is a big teaching day at U of H, and. Mm When I'm really beat up, my kids will tell you that I get the the case comes with me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I'm going to open the case. Sure. Uh, and if I do, I'm usually getting a pencil out. <laughs> <laughs> let's back up. Uh, let's go back to Atlanta for a little bit. You mentioned playing before the symphony. You played with the Atlanta Opera Orchestra and the uh-huh. Ballet Orchestra, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, was Robert Shaw? Uh, is this? I'm trying to think of the dates. Yeah, Robert Shaw was music director of the Atlanta Symphony during that time, and the Atlanta and uh, Opera and Ballet were a different entity. They had two different conductors, but didn't realize that. I um, first worked for Robert Shaw when I was a senior in high school. Oh no, kidding! Um, I uh, was lucky. You're from Atlanta. Right? I am so from you Atlanta. Have, you would have had that opportunity. I did, and I was in the youth orchestra, 
And back then, that youth orchestra was sort of structured a little more like Civic in Chicago was. College kids auditioned for it as well. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was screened, and so the trumpet section would frequently have college kids in there with high schoolers. And <laughs> there's pros and cons to that. And they, they, after I got out of that orchestra, two or three years later, they changed it to all high school. And so the winds took a little bit of a hit in quality, but you also took away some of the corrupting <laughs> influence. <laughs> well, you can imagine. Yeah, As well. a 16-year-old yeah. trumpeter, I was in a section with a bunch of college kids. Mm -hmm. And their idea of fun was going out and having pizza and beer and whatever and, and having a good time. Mm -hmm. And I was literally, when I was first in that orchestra, I was 15. And so I wasn't even able to drive. And uh, so I grew up fast. Mm -hmm. um, but by the time I was a senior and, and I was doing well, I, my teacher was in the orchestra and I had joined the, the local. I was already playing some gigs even with him and with mm -hmm. some of the, the orchestra players. And I got called to play extra with the orchestra on a, a piece that had offstage brass by Arrigo Boito. Buito was Verdi's librettist, and he wrote this wonderful uh, piece, um, um, Mephistopheles. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Jerome Hines, I remember, was supposed to be the soloist and canceled at the last minute. And then John Cheek, who was a young man, had just been singing with the Met, uh, came in and stepped in and had this great devil voice of Mephistopheles. And here I am, a young 17-year-old kid who mm -hmm. was in the Union, and playing, but that was my first big opportunity, and so I uh, played a week, and then we did three master sessions and made a, a recording, a digital recording, one of the very first digital recordings actually made for Telarc. Um, so that was the, the about April and May of 1979, and uh, so it was really fun getting out of school to uh -huh. go play recording sessions and with a major like orchestra. You already knew at this point this is the track you wanted to go, this is the path you to head yes, the, the dream had already been mm -hmm. put in my head. It's what I wanted to do. Um, that was a push for me. I, was I really, you know, the very best player they could have found in Atlanta? I don't know. I don't know. I know I was grateful for the opportunity, mm -hmm. and I learned a boatload that week. Mm -hmm. And I did get to work with Robert Shaw mm -hmm. and see that choir then. Who would have been principal in Atlanta with you growing up and going to concerts? Who would you that was to? Uh, John Head was the principal oh, trumpet. Yeah. Joe Walthall was second trumpet, and Larry Black was third trumpet. It was a three-man section back mm -hmm. in those days, and it was a forty-eight-week season, if I remember right, at that time. And then shortly thereafter, they went fifty-two week. Um, and then I would come home. Um, uh, Actually, that summer before I went to Northwestern, I was used a good bit as a sub um, in the summer season playing third trumpet because John Head, the principal, would leave and go conducting, I think at Art Park or somewhere he would, he would conduct all summer, and the uh, my old teacher, who was the second and assistant principal, would move up and play principal. Mm -hmm. Well, then he would call me, and, I, and Larry would move up and play second, and I would play third. Mm -hmm. And you know, the pay was good, uh -huh. experience was great, yeah. and I did that, and um, then I went to school, and each year when I would come home from school in the summer, uh, Northwestern was really expensive, and my family wasn't really wealthy by any means, and so I couldn't go to a lot of the summer programs, uh -huh. and I didn't know of one that was free, you know, and um, so I would stay home, and I'd work a job, uh -huh. and I would sub with the Atlanta mm -hmm. Symphony. In practice. Yeah, in practice. Yeah. But now I look 
back upon it, and I had the best training anybody mm -hmm. in the world could have. I'm playing every summer with a major orchestra. <laughs> I'm sight reading with the orchestra on pop shows, and we played classical program every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so I'm learning rep, and I'm learning it from the third chair, which is a great place to watch and to learn to listen. Mm -hmm. And so I did that every summer that I would come home. And so I had a great, I had a lot more training than I realized I had. Sure. Until, you know, I started working as a professional. And then I realized <laughs> I had had a lot of training. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, I was lucky. Yeah. So I just happened to be right place, mm -hmm. right time. Wish everybody could have that experience. But today, it's hard to come by that kind of sure. experience. Um, let's move on to Northwestern. You were fortunate to study with Chickowitz himself. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why you went to Northwestern. Mm -hmm. Had you had uh, sample lessons with him prior to that? Or? I did. Man, you, you're good. You, it's almost as if you've done your homework. Um, <laughs> I had gone up with my teacher uh, when I was a junior in high school and had a lesson with Chickowitz. Uh, I remember I played Tomasi concerto for him. I played Telemann concerto for him. And I played some excerpts. And uh, my teacher didn't know what Northwestern was like. He was kind of hoping, I think, that Chickowitz would say, hey, you're good enough now, come on up and skip your senior year of high school. <laughs> and, you know, it's a, it's a university. Right. That wasn't going to happen. But <laughs> it did get me connected with Chickowitz, and Chickowitz told me what to work on that he'd like for me to work on mm -hmm. and sort of advised me as to what I should play for my audition the next year. Um, and so uh, then when I went up the next year, my senior year for the audition, at least he, he remembered who I was. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now back to the interview. So, what would what did you start working on with him? What did he sense? Would he he knew, from what I can tell, he could find people's weaknesses and strengths. He, he was amazing at it. And you know, he used the, this is the the uncanny thing about Chickowitz. And people today think that like his books or his method is the magic. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's the magic at all. He was the magic. Mm -hmm. Those were just the materials he was comfortable with, like Clark Studies, for instance. Well, a lot of people t teach Clark Studies. Sure. We all play Clark Studies, I think, or should. Mm -hmm. That's just what he was familiar with. Mm -hmm. It was the way he, you're, you're correct, he assessed abilities immediately, and he ass assessed weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And whatever your weaknesses might be, that's what he attacked. Well, I grew up with a really powerful playing teacher. Mm -hmm. And I learned to play with a lot of power and and sort of not really forcing, but, but I played loud well. Sure. Still do. But soft playing was something that wasn't a, a strength. And another thing that shocks people today, because I've turned a weakness into a strength, is lyrical playing. Mm -hmm. I'm a very good lyrical player now. But back then, I couldn't buy a slur if, if I... <laughs> Had a thousand dollars in my pocket. I I had very little sure. ability to play lyrically, yeah. and it wasn't a fault of my teacher. He had me buy Conconi books. I mm -hmm. just couldn't put it together, mm -hmm. and that's what Chickowitz assessed mm -hmm. when I was sixteen and said I needed to start working on. And we spent a lot more time in high school on Conconis and things like that. And then 
when I was at Northwestern as a freshman, we really started busting it on on those kind of aspects of playing. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, I think this was after my sophomore year of school, I went home and had a lesson with Joe Walthall and we're playing and Joe said to me, why are you playing this sucky stuff? And I was playing Clodomir 70 Little Studies and that mm -hmm. book a lot of people don't use anymore, mm -hmm. uh, but I give that book to people if I like them. <laughs> you know, like this is like, because that's the secret to keeping your job. Mm -hmm. If you can play light, and soft, good response. Yep. You know, I, I think most people can learn to throw the ball really hard. Um, you might not have a Nolan Ryan fastball. But you, what if everybody had a knuckleball? Yes. Right? Exactly. And you need one. Or an off-speed. You just need that. Something I mean, to, Greg Maddox. Yeah. Think about, like, uh, the old pitcher with the Braves and, and the Cubs before that. And, you know, he never had a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. Mm. He had, it on a good day, a 91-mile-an-hour fastball. Mm. But boy, could he strike people out mm -hmm. because he had finesse. And I didn't have a lot of finesse, and that's what Chickwitz's goal was to teach me to play with mm -hmm. finesse. And while I'm not the most finesseful player out there, it's okay to be third or fourth best. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, a thing in life you learn. Third or fourth best around is still that's pretty good. Yeah, I'll take so, that. But now you're at Northwestern for four years, mm -hmm. right? There, you at some point you move on to what? Excerpts well, you know, or interesting. Or... Um, I asked him even my senior year. I said, you know, why why aren't we working on also Sprock and some of the big tunes? And and his response was, because I know you can already play those. Yeah. You know, because I was practicing those all the time anyway. Sure. I was playing Heldon Laban or whatnot every day. And he kept working on me on, on light things mm -hmm. and lessons. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of that. We did do top tones for the trumpeter. We did do, you know, big things. Sure. Uh, but I never did the Brant book. Never did the things that customarily, mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're really looking at a four-year Chickowitz program and you talk to people about it, he's going to check every corner of the foundation of that house to mm -hmm. make sure it's sound. He didn't do that with me because he already knew a lot of it was already solid mm -hmm. from high school. The area that was weak, he knew if he could fix that. Mm -hmm. I remember once, early in my years there, he said, Mark, one day when you just mellow out, you're going to be a world of a trumpet player. But, you know. You Did just, you know what gonna... he meant? I mean, no, young... no, right. no. I didn't know what he meant. I do now. Sure. But I didn't then. Because um, we're, we're all, you know, you remember that? Oh, yeah. Those ages, you're, you're just wrapped with insecurity and you don't know yeah. anything. But he, um, he was always um, a supportive and encouraging kind of teacher. Mm -hmm. You would always leave um, the studio like floating on air, no matter how badly you came in feeling mm -hmm. like you were playing. Mm -hmm. um, I only had one exception to that. And, um, and it's the only one that I know of. Um, he was such a warm, I mean, I remember those eyes, uh, his Polish eyes, and it just, oh, what a, a terrific man. But my freshman year, I was floundering a bit. Mm -hmm. I played in marching band in the fall, and it was early in the winter, and I just, I was getting bees and trumpet. I was really, I was trying hard, but I was floundering. Sure. And um, had a lesson, and, you know, he always gave us a little menu piece of paper on a notepad and he would write you know mouthpiece tones long tone studies Clark studies and then Arvin and then whatever etudes that mm -hmm. in, in repertoire we were working on and so 
it was very well notated. He put that on the stand and he says, well, let's go over to the Dufresne, the sight reading book, and let's, mm -hmm. let's do number four or whatever, number six, mm -hmm. whatever it was. We open up the book and I look at it and I had not practiced it. I practiced number seven instead of six. Uh-oh. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, I'm just like, I, should I try to sight read it or should I be <laughs> honest to tell him? Mm -hmm. And I said, Mr. Chickowitz, uh, I didn't practice the right study. I did not practice number six. I practiced number seven. And I think I must have called him. He was going through a divorce. I think I must have called him on a bad day or something. Mm. And he looked at me and he said, why? Why did you not practice number six? It's right here on the page. <laughs> Which is not like what he would have ever done. He would have been more understanding. And I said, I don't know, but I didn't practice that one. I'm very sorry. Mm -hmm. And he said, I put it on the page and picked this etude for a reason. Wow. Why didn't you practice this one? And I said, I really don't know. And he was completely disgusted and he said, okay, well, let's hear number seven then. And of course, I'm tied up in knots and I can barely play. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take me maybe a measure or a measure and a half and I frag something and he just lays into me. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll never forget this phrase as long as I live. He said, Mark, you can continue to wallow in your pool of mediocrity if you want. And after that, it was just blah, 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 blah. I mean, I was sure. destroyed. Sure. And if I'd have looked up, I'd have had crocodile tears running down my face. He broke me completely. And I think he knew me so well. I don't think he would have done that to probably hardly anybody else in that studio at that time. But I needed that. And I needed a really hard kick in the butt. And he didn't let up. And he just kept, you know, driving the stake in the mm -hmm. ground. And I don't remember leaving the studio. I literally don't remember that. I, I must have slithered under the door. But, you know, to his credit, then I figured I was going to be banished to the associate teacher for a oh, month kind of thing. Sure. And the next week I had a lesson with him, um, same exact time. We got lessons every 10 to 12 days. Mm -hmm. And so to get one seven days later was something. Mm -hmm. And I had a lesson a week later, and I obviously I played my butt off. Mm -hmm. and, and he acknowledged that that was more up to the standard. And you know what? I never floundered again. Mm. But that was just something that's out of the Chickwitz norm. Um, I don't know anybody else that that's occurred. But, but the impact, that lesson, that particular lesson. Changed my life. That, that was a real demarcation. And I've heard this from other people who've gotten it from other teachers. Mm -hmm. Just I'd never heard of anybody, and I still haven't else uh, heard that from you know, Vince Chickowitz because mm -hmm. uh, that was just not his mode. Now, Michael Chickowitz, his son, Recognize, when I told him that story, he recognized that. <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, that's the Slavic side of my, wow. my dad. You know, I, I, I know that side. Yeah. So I'll edit this part out. I've told this story at least once before on a podcast. But similarly, Chappie Perry, I don't know if you knew Marvin, who was <laughs> principal with mm -hmm. Tyus Oker. Yes. Uh, he was there for We never met. I know of him, I should say. So uh, when I started my master's at Butler, he was my, my trumpet professor. And uh, second lesson, I came in. And he said, now, Larry, uh, now, so Chappie's a very southern gentleman, so everything's much slower, you know, from Alabama. Well, that sounds like Cajun, so I'm definitely... <laughs> oh, but it's, it had I'm a not, little, little bit of Alabama. I'm not going to try to put uh, an accent on it, but, Larry, 
had a lot of students over the years. And some we've worked on solos, and some we've worked on excerpts. He goes, but you, I think we have to go back to the very beginning. You know, I was devastated, but maybe the most impactful lesson, you know, was mattered and mad as a hornet that he said that, you know, damaged my ego, hurt me. Sure. We all want him to say, you're ready, let's work on the Tomasi yeah, the first week. Right. But you know what? You got the better, you got the better math. It method. was, it was, and he was right. I had to be broken down mm -hmm. and rebuilt. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, you know, I look back now and I think, well, just like you remembering that story, this, that meant something to me. And I didn't see it then, mm -hmm. but I see it now, and I see it so clearly. Aren't you better as a teacher well, because of it, too? I hope so. And, you know, you mentioned something earlier today in, a, in master class, uh, uh, and I wanted to, to call it empathy. You were describing something to one of the students that played. You know, we have to have that ability to empathize with our students. If we've suffered something, if we've mm -hmm. had to go through an embouchure change or... Uh, We've, we've had bad habit after bad habit that we've had to replace. Mm -hmm. uh, being totally rebuilt, right? Mm -hmm. you know, I think that makes us a better teacher. It gives us the possibility to be a better teacher because now we can identify with that student sitting next to us who may be about to go undergo the same thing. Absolutely. You know what Chickowitz used to say, too, is not only would we be a better teacher and a better performer and all that for it, it's a, and ultimately, you're a better mm -hmm. human. Yeah. And I mean, that would, a lot of times at that age, it just went right over my head, but he's, he's right. Yeah. And then we understand um, it all ties together. The arts do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's mm -hmm. the culmination of, of our existence. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing to, to see, because we, we, I think we needed that. What if you had been that golden boy that had gone through and everything had worked? And they do exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes we work with those people from time to time over the years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's I, honestly, when I'd see that, you know, at first you want to celebrate the fact that they've never had the problems, but they're, it's sad because they don't have that benefit mm -hmm. of that process mm -hmm. through all of that. And they've been robbed in a way because of the immediacy, uh, the talent, sure. and being able to perfect things. Um, sometimes they have gone through that process much earlier in life than, say, we were able to. But a lot of times today, and you see that, you know, youth and talent is so celebrated in our, in our uh, culture today. And I think we do people a disservice. I, I, I rolled it. my eyes right there. Nobody can see that. I rolled my eyes. But, you know, the, sometimes the current definition of talent is so loose. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It's like, that's not talent. Mm -hmm. It's well, it may be. And well, I, at least it's a, it's a technical facility that's impressive, which some young players have. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that struck me a lot, and I don't know, I'll ask you this. Um, years ago, I mean, back in the, when I was coming up, mm -hmm. you know, when, I, when we were recording jazz artists, we didn't record 18 and 20-year-olds. They just, not that I remember. There might have been early 20s guys, but they lived a hard life. You know, Chet Baker had a lot to say. And yeah. But, you know, most of these guys had been living much more of a life 
uh, if they were recorded early, but we were still recording artists as they aged too. Mm -hmm. Today, I mean, some of these, some of the players I would really, and I, I won't mention them, I guess, but some of these guys I would really like to hear recorded. I mean, we have an old guy in, in Houston. He's been around for years, Dennis Dotson. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of him or not. No. That guy, when it comes to playing a jazz solo, he says a world of life experiences mm -hmm. in a chorus. Mm -hmm. And it's unreal what the guy can do. He couldn't get on a, a, a record label to touch him. And would he have a lot more to say? Yes. But see, they can't market that old guy. Oh, right. It's not sexy enough. It it's ain't not, se There's nothing not sexy about him at enough. this point, not, you know? Right. He's, he's, he's an old guy that's been around, but let me tell you, if we, mm -hmm. we were going out and we wanted to hear jazz, mm -hmm. that's who we're going to want to go hear. And you'd sit there and go, Mark, wh who is this guy? Mm -hmm. Who is Dennis Dodson? And you will remember him forever. And that's the sad thing to me, is mm -hmm. there are a lot of Dennis Dodsons around this country in places, and they never can get picked up because they're just not marketable, and they'd much rather get this 22-year-old kid mm -hmm. that looks great and has mm -hmm. the look, uh, slash metrosexual slash jazz guy, and they'll, that's who they choose to market mm -hmm. and push on us. And, and that's fine in a way, but the, it, while they might be talented, they don't have that life's experience because they're not they're not old enough to have experienced life. Well, if they never like, had a hurt. How do you talk? How do you play the blues? Well, that, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. You know, like America's Got Talent or American Idol or whatever it is. You get this this little kid on, who can can sing the blues or play the blues, or, but you're like, it, it's it's just going through the motions. <laughs> they how, can't how feel the blues. How much has this kid actually suffered? Right. You know, he got a B on a on a. <laughs> On something that is not a hardship. That is not, that's, that's you know, right. it's you know. How many times could he have broken up with you know somebody? It's he's. <laughs> so I get I get what you're you know what I mean. Yeah, and that's absolutely. my that's my main thing is in our industry today we've mm -hmm. kind of cut our own throats in a way um, because we are attracted to the shallow mm -hmm. and not to the depth. Um, it is what it is. You know, you know? I I really appreciate it. There. Uh, this goes back to the master class earlier today, too. You know, first of all, just like any teacher, when you have uh, a guest come in and work with your students, um, you end up saying exactly the same things that that teacher has said, mm -hmm. maybe in a different way. Mm -hmm. But you, you stood there today and, and said some things. In fact, one, uh, I used a lot. I mean, I, I'm so tired of looking at uh, dynamics as a fixed decibel level. It's not. It's all contextual. It's, you it's know, all contextual. And, and to, to try to relate that to people and, and to play more than what's on the page. There are a couple students here working on Halsey Stevens. And there's a lot of markings already in the part, but there are places where you need to drive the phrase, but it's not marked with an accent. It's not, mm -hmm. it doesn't have, you know, the, the right. hairpins. That's right. But and so they're they're they play it safe. They just play what's there. And I'm like, no, no, you. But it comes to the depth of experience too. Either they need to just live with this piece for a long time, or they just need to listen to every single recording they can over and over and over, and just until they get, oh, yeah, that's what that. So I know I just went off on a tangent here, but but, but that's but, a that's a good tangent because the thing I think that we 
And I think we as teachers need to be brave enough to actually drive this message harder mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because we are all insecure people mm -hmm. and we're sometimes afraid to go against what's on the page even. And But a really good musician frequently goes against what's on the page. So a couple of minds were blown here. You know, I think it was in, uh, it's a Bozza Caprice. I got a couple students working on that. And it says, uh, Sordine. So they pick up their straight mute. So why are you picking up a straight mute? Well, it says Sordine. Sordine. <laughs> he said, why not cup? Why not plunger? Why not? But, no, no. When you get latitude like that, unless it says straight mute, and even then, you know, how many different things could you try right. on that? But to, to start to look at things, uh, Mozart. Uh, you know, I, I played Mozart this past weekend. Mm -hmm. Bomb, bop, bop, bomb. If you play exactly what's on the page, I mean, there are no accents, but it's, I'm a glorified timpani player. I have to think about the way the timpani mm -hmm. is going to play and the strike, you know, on the head and mm -hmm. the kind of attack. That I, you know, so I have a little more experience. I'm willing to take that risk, mm -hmm. you know, and try to, and try to play that way. And I guess that's what it's coming down. It's just experience. So where do they get that? They have to. They have to be like you, right? Where they, they find the opportunity. And put themselves into that position where they get the experience playing with a major symphony orchestra mm -hmm. at 16 years old, 15 years old. Right. That doesn't happen. But where it does happen, I'm trying to bring this full circle. Our summer music classes, our summer. Uh, Music festivals, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Right. And this is right. this. These are the opportunities for these kids to right. get this experience. That's right. right. That's right. Brevard, Chosen Vale, all those things we mentioned earlier. Brevard is a wonderful place too. It's not far from here. Mm -hmm. uh, um, literally, it's just a couple hours uh, away. And I taught there seven years, and it's wonderful. It just it was a time commitment that was hard for me to do. Mm -hmm. um, and after a while, and it just as my family grew up. They, at the end, they ended up not being able to go with me for the three weeks. So for me, three yeah. weeks alone in a cabin, uh, in a, an environment that's very humid, just like Houston. And I'm playing in a delightful orchestra of, of people. They're wonderful people. Mm -hmm. But it's not quite the level of the orchestra that I work with every day. And while it's fun to have, you know, play also Sprague Zaratustra and have three students in the section who are for the first time and they're seeing and hearing me play, you know, the high seas and all that. And it's cool in a way to look down and see their jaws on the ground and, and be impressed. There's a point where I don't need that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not as, I mean, it's fun, but there's a point of fatigue and I have to start looking out, out for me and sure. my livelihood and my job <clears throat> and everything. And I had to really, it took a while of, of sort of a lot of, uh, going through and, mm -hmm. and asking questions and is this what I really want to do and when I first did that I did not have a college position at the time mm -hmm. and I, that was my you know outlet of teaching college kids uh, at, you know when I moved to, first moved to mm -hmm. Houston there was no college positions open and and so that's what I was doing and then after I was on the faculty at U of H and I have plenty of college outlets and other things that I'm doing I had to start shaving off 
and just my family needed it too sure. and needed me home. And it just was one of those things where I had to let something go and I let that go. However, that's a great program over there. I mm -hmm. still have some really good friends in that orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, I hope they're still good friends. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen many of them since I left. Mm -hmm. Um, college professors, some professional players, mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful experience for kids. They go over there for six weeks and really get baptized into that world <laughs> pretty heavily, mm -hmm. and literally because it's so humid over there <laughs> that I think you, you yeah. are going to be baptized. The, the thing that made it palpable, uh, you know, or, or sustainable at all was the fact that I had two dehumidifiers in my cabin oh, wow. <laughs> that ran 24-7. Yeah. It is very humid there. It's as humid there as it is in Houston, which I know everybody here, you say, oh, I know humidity, you know, because Knoxville is right here on the river and it gets really humid here, you know. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. But until you've been to the Philippines, you oh, don't right. you don't know what Houston is like. Right. <laughs> and it is, the summer in Houston can be a little bit like the Philippines. Mm -hmm. It's pretty intense for about five months. And I think the state bird is the mosquito, right? Uh, it, yes, that yes. it's, it's, and the mosquitoes are bigger than pterodactyls. Right. I mean, it is, <laughs> it is pretty yeah. amazing. And we have everything there. We also have lots of ticks. I wouldn't even have thought of that, but I mean, you know, uh, having dogs, mm -hmm. you know, I'm fully aware of that, that yeah. kind of stuff now. We, and it's just because it never gets cold enough mm -hmm. there to kill off anything. So it's humid, it's mucky, but I'll tell you, it's the friendliest city I've ever lived in. Nice. Uh, and coming from a southern city mm -hmm. like Atlanta, I thought that it was not going to be that way. But, but Houston is incredibly friendly, mm -hmm. um, and it's also a real hardworking, and it gives the impression of it being purely blue-collar blue mm -hmm. kind of work. People roll up their sleeves and get to mm -hmm. work. However, it has a wonderful arts um, community. Yeah. And they have amazing art museums, mm -hmm. uh, third richest art museum of, as far as holdings in the country okay. is there. MFAH, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, okay. is just behind the Getty and the Metropolitan. Okay. And, yeah, that's putting it ahead of the Art Institute in Chicago, wow. right? Just, just so, but that's there's a lot of money there in yeah. that town, and the arts are alive and well. Mm -hmm. There are more art, uh, seats to art events that are available to purchase year-round than anywhere else in the country except for New York City. A lot of people don't know about Houston, Texas. It's like the I'm biggest I'm going to have to secret. make sure that this segment makes it to uh, Houston's... Uh, <laughs> um, tourism. Yeah, tourism, and, yeah, right, exactly, board. Exactly. But I mean, it's exactly... It's but uh, but literally, the city is... Mm -hmm. is the, the orchestra is really good. Mm-hmm. I mean that's the thing. It's really one well of the best and to be able to country. support a fifty-two week orchestra these days. Yeah. you have to have a vibrant uh, culture. And we have a, a really good opera company too. Mm -hmm. I mean it's it's the best Houston Grand of, Opera. Yeah, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that they have their own orchestra. I mean, it's it that's it. And you ever we, play over there? I have not. I would love to, wow. but I have not. And same thing with the ballet. I'd love to sometime at the last minute have to go in and play a Nutcracker or something. <laughs> Uh, so it's not Nutcracker, though. You know, it's Puccini for me. Oh, it's like, absolutely. It's, you know, playing. Oh. And, and, you know, <laughs> and when it comes to phrasing, uh, I don't know if you have this book. Phil Snedeker has a book, uh, Etudes in the Operatic Style. Mm -hmm. Right? It's a mm -hmm. really, really mm -hmm. well done book. Um, but it's, it's, I use that quite a bit if I really want to work on phrasing and if I want to demonstrate what rubato absolutely. is absolutely. really about, you know, I mean, there's so much stretching, there's so much give and take 
in those, especially with... Uh, you know, and one thing that I was talking about today in the, the class, and people don't realize, that rubato only is possible in, in the area where time has been established. Mm -hmm. If time is never established, we're just drunk, stumbling down the street. But if once time is established, so you have a momentum mm -hmm. with the music, mm -hmm. then you tug on it just a little or push forward, and you feel everything. So rubato. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studio HFL. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews. Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. -S -E they offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, Please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview.